As you know, we are walking through the social principles of the Methodist Church, positions taken by General Conference. Uh, we are making no attempt to do everything, or we'd be here for about four more years, uh, but picking a few. Last week was the sexuality issues, homosexuality, abortion, religious issues. So today, uh, we're going to take a look at alcohol, tobacco, gambling, war, and military service. Nothing remotely controversial about any of those things. Uh, but want to begin kind of where we were uh, last week. We're going to do this again next week. Remind ourselves in the preface and the prelude of the social principles, there's some very important statements made about what these are, what their purpose is, uh, before we jump in. Uh, the preface says, these are not church law. English translation, do you have to agree with them? No. There's no requirement there whatsoever. Uh, that's not the purpose. They're not put there. Some traditions actually do have statements that, technically speaking, if you're going to be a member of that body, you should kowtow to that position because it's expected. We do not have that expectation. Their purpose, quoting the preface again, they are a call to faithfulness intended to be instructive and persuasive and the best of the prophetic spirit. And then the, the next slide, uh, they're a call to the members of the Methodist Church for prayerful study, dialogue, and faith and practice. And then... The preamble adds something very critical to that, just to remind ourselves. It says, we pledge to continue to be in respectful conversation, easier said than done, with those with whom we differ, to explore the sources of our differences, to honor the sacred worth of all persons as we continue to seek the mind of Christ and do the will of God in all things. So, short version. They're intended to provoke a dialogue. That they do well, okay? They do that well. Uh, we're invited into respectful conversation with those with whom we disagree. The ultimate purpose is we would like to seek the will of God. Uh, and, of course, implied here is my understanding of the will of God may not, in fact, be the will of God. So there's an invitation there to, to, to think critically. And these are, of course, difficult and controversial issues. So first out of the shoot, what strikes you about that title? This is lifted right from the, the uh, social principles. Other drugs so right up front what is alcohol it's a drug and the medical community would in fact uh, uh, agree uh, some of y'all know the policy of Highland Park United Methodist Church if you're an employee and you show up here with alcohol in your breath even if you're not uh, on duty you're summarily fired three in the last two years okay uh, if you in our church if we have any function sponsored by the church on site are off-site in the United States or halfway around the world? Is alcohol allowed? No. Okay. Now, my Baptist mother's heart would be very warmed, okay? <laughs> the Methodist got something right. So, but there's some nuances here. So let's look at this. And we're going to then look at John Wesley's position because John Wesley and the Methodist Church did not originally have this view, okay? This is a change. We're going to look at that. Uh, we affirm our long-standing support of abstinence and alcohol, that does not go back to the 1700s, but it is long-standing, as a faithful witness to God's liberating and redeeming love of persons. So what's the, what's the important phraseology there? Abstinence, okay. We support abstinence from the use of any illegal drugs. Again, the, the two categories are going together. Since the use of illegal drugs as well as legal and, uh, as, as well as illegal and problematic use of alcohol, is a major factor in crime, disease, death, and family dysfunction. 
We support educational programs as well as other prevention strategies encouraging abstinence from illegal drug use. That was, of course, not overly controversial. And with regard, it's interesting, and with regard to those who choose to consume alcoholic beverages, that is allowed, judicious use and deliberate and intentional restraint with scripture as a guide. I'm still trying to figure out which scriptures they were referring to. <laughs> mm, okay, I'm not sure. It wouldn't be John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. It would probably not be that. Missions, uh, millions of living uh, human beings are testimony to the beneficial consequences of therapeutic drug use. We all know that. We all benefit from it. Millions of others are testimony to the detrimental consequences of drug abuse. And again, not anything that, that's new to us. We encourage wise policies relating to the availability of potentially beneficial or potentially damaging prescription and over-the-counter drugs. We urge that complete information about their use and misuse be readily available to both doctor and patient. We support the strict administration of laws regulating the sale and distribution of alcohol and controlled substances. I th that's an interesting one considering where we are in our society right now. We support regulations that protect society and users of drugs, uh, from users of drugs of any kind, including alcohol. Don't expect to go light if you're caught DWI. Where it can be shown that a clear and present soci uh, societal danger exists. Drug-dependent persons and their family members, including those who are assessed or diagnosed as dependent on alcohol, are individuals of uh, infinite human worth. We do not stigmatize them. Deserving the treatment, rehabilitation, ongoing life-changing recovery. Misuse or abuse may also require intervention. Any of y'all have been a part of an intervention? That's a pretty powerful thing. In order to prevent progression into dependence because of the frequent interrelationship between alcohol abuse and mental illness, we call upon legislatures of health and care providers to make available appropriate mental illness treatment and rehabilitation for drug-dependent persons. A lot of kind of collateral language around this. We commit ourselves to assisting those who suffer from abuse or dependence and their families in finding freedom through Jesus Christ and in finding good opportunities for treatment, for ongoing counseling, and for reintegration into society. Now, that's a fairly straightforward hardcore position on the use of alcohol. Well, maybe. What are we urged to do? What was the word? Abstain. And then a few slides later it said what? For those who choose? Door kind of cracked open there a little bit, didn't it? So th there's some nuances here. Let's go back to Mr. Wesley. The position that we have in the Book of Discipline today has not been there from the beginning. Uh, uh, which is to say it's a, a opposition to alcohol in any form, including wine and beer. As a matter of fact, does anybody know back in the 1700s, early 1800s, if you went to a Methodist communion service, what would you be served? You would be served wine. Uh, is this still true in most Christians today? Um, it was not the position of John Wesley. Now, Wesley did, in very, very strong language, condemn one thing, and it was something new. The 18th century where John Wesley lived was the first time in history we were able to produce what was we call distilled alcohol, that we could raise the alcohol content above this natural fermentation. Uh, the term of the day was spiritus liquors. 
and spiritus liquors, isn't that a good turn of phrase? And it wrecked havoc in England. Matter of fact, there was that old sign that said, drunk, what was it? Uh, drunk for half pence, dead drunk for a pence, you know, the sign on the side of the road, which gives you an idea that if you're in a society with many social ills, an, um, an exit strategy was readily available for almost nothing, and many people took it. He did not oppose, and is not on record as opposing beer and wine. Uh, he did have the famous letter to an alcoholic. He talked about spiritus liquors. Um, so again, this, this is new. 1744, Wesley required of the Methodists that they were to taste no spiritus or distilled liquor unless prescribed by a physician. Because what was alcohol in the 18th century? It was a medicine. Okay? On the advice of a physician, we're told that Mr. Wesley had a shot of bourbon each evening. Okay? And that, was I mean that would be prescribed by doctors for certain, for certain ailments. Uh, the American Methodists originally had the same position, Coke and Asbury. Uh, the first two American bishops commented, this is uh, from one of their writings that period, St. Paul does not complain of the lay Corinthians drinking the wine of the Lord's Supper, but that they're both eating and drinking most intemperately. So clearly there the understanding in early American Methodism was you would have communion with wine. 1784, when Wesley sent over the Articles of Religion, the Standard Service, and the documentation by which the American Methodist Church was formally constituted as the Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, the rubrics indicated and presupposed that wine, in fact, would be served. It's in the 1800s that this then begins to shift, uh, and we see in our society, in our culture, for lots of reasons, there's a shift towards against alcohol in any form or fashion. Uh, it was ex uh, extended to include beer and wine. And this leads to, what is that movement called? Temperance movement. Uh, Methodist Church was dead center in that. Uh, 1880 General Conference uh, made a statement that temperance is a Christian virtue. Scripture enjoined. Now, temperance just means moderation. But it was understood to mean abstinence is the way the term was actually used. Our current book of worship has an interesting statement in it uh, when it talks about communion in the Methodist Church and how communion is done and why it's done. This wording is, is really revealing. Although the historic and ecumenical, ecumenical would be what? The global Christian community. Although the history of the Christian faith and the majority of Christians in the world use wine, most Christians today use wine, probably about 90%. Uh, and most Christians through history have used wine. Most denominations do. The use of unfermented grape juice by the United Methodist Church and its predecessors since the late 19th century expresses pastoral concern for recovering alcoholics, would not create a problem, enables the participation of children and youth. We have any Episcopalian or Lutheran background here? Children receive wine? They didn't die off any quicker than the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. Once you've had First Communion. Yeah. yeah. It was so funny. We, we take our confirmation class, sixth graders, to uh, Episcopal Church. And you should see the look on their faces when they realize it's wine and it's going down. They're like, <laughs> so <laughs> The gift that keeps on giving. It's, a, it's kind of a shock to them. Um, and warrants the church's witness to, or witness of abstinence. Okay. Little footnote here. Thomas Bramwell Welch, okay? 
Now, there's two versions of the story. I'll give the one I like to tell, and I'll give the truth. Uh, the one I like to tell is this, is that uh, one of the largest contributors to the Methodist Church of this time period was Welch. And the Methodist Church during that same time period voted to change over from wine to grape juice. And there are those who put two and two together and get four. Okay. <laughs> History's a little more complicated. He actually, uh, Louis Pasteur, had invented something called pasteurization of milk. And Welch was actually a committed Methodist, he and his brother. And they actually were looking for a way to do the same thing with grape juice, or you know, to make grape juice safe. And so it's actually the cart before the horse type thing. Actually, the motivation originally was to make it where we could have the Lord's Supper without actually using alcohol, but do it safely. And then he and his brother went on to build an empire and did very nicely by that. So there's two versions of that story. The Methodists, along with the Baptists and others, are active in the temperance movement as well as the prohibitionist movement. Uh, today, the opposition to all forms of alcohol is most common in the United States. If you get outside the United States, it's interesting. You know. In Europe, most churches wouldn't have an issue with this and around the world. It depends on what denomination you are. It is most common also among Protestant groups, but not all Protestant groups. Uh, Lutherans use alcohol or use wine. Episcopalians use wine. Catholics use wine. Orthodox use wine. Help me out here. Any other groups you know of who use wine? Disciples of Christ? No. no. Grape juice? Yeah. Baptist? Definitely grape juice. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Methodists in some places in the world use wine, not in the United States. Um, and so that's one of those ones that it, it's, it's kind of split. Historically, now I was ordained an elder, in, uh, uh, actually a deacon, in 1974. And in 1974, the bishop asked us a series of questions. One of the questions we were asked was, would we abstain from alcohol? And it was real clear, the bishop instructed us, that were we to break that vow, it would be grounds for removal from the ministry. I don't think that's being done anymore. I don't, I don't hear that language at the ordination services. Um, but that was true. HPUMC policy forbids the use, again, anywhere, any function. So even if a Sunday school class or a singles class decides they're going to meet somewhere, and their, their idea, but it's sponsored by the church, through the church. The policy is we should not. Is that policy ever broken? <laughs> you better believe it. Yeah, all the time. Uh, but again, that's, that's one of those interesting things. Um, we do know that it's grounds for dismissal from employees, lay or ordained, and whether or not they're on duty. That really shocked some people about a year and a half ago when two people within about three weeks were terminated because they showed up in Ebrid. They weren't on duty. What? Yeah. They showed up, I think, at a concert, didn't they? Yeah. They showed up at a concert in the sanctuary. Yeah. But, you know, they were employees, and clearly they were inebriated. So that was a clear <coughs> career-limiting move. Okay. Before we move on to other stuff, I thought we'd just kick this around for a second. Okay. What do you think? You like it? You're a hardcore Methodist, aren't you? <laughs> Water into wine, 
What's the big deal? people I know have, have commented it seems blown out of proportion there's there seems to be a lot of energy into that is that really when we were want to put your energy obviously historically at least in the 1800s and the early 1900s and to some degree today there's still a lot of energy there other thoughts yes That's a good question. I'm surprised it's not. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We have a we have a comment here. So there seems to be a little bit of unfairness there. Okay. Yeah. The potential for alcoholism, for alcohol abuse, for all that springs from that is there. So there's there's a risk factor to acknowledge. I'm struck by a couple of statements. Of course, again, they're non-binding, although church policy is binding. That's, and at our church, we're much more constrained by the policy of Highland Park Methodist Church than we are by the social principles. It was interesting, the social principles, it says we, uh, we recommend abstinence, and then three slides later, for those who choose to ignore this, at least use some common sense. That was, that was in, I'd never really noticed that before. That was really interesting language, you know. And some of it, I'm sure, is that what we're dealing with is it's historically conditioned. We're in the United States coming out of the 1800s, the temperance movement, all of that, prohibition, all of that, and that, that's still part of our heritage. You know, the, the stuff with alcohol and wine was not there in the beginning. It clearly got there, and we're still living with some of that. Uh, and we know, I know in this community, I would guess that four out of five homes would have a wet bar in their house be my guess. I mean, that's just, that's culture where you are. I know uh, Barbara's parents grew up in the business. Any of y'all watch Mad Men? Yes. Yeah. We lived it, didn't we? I mean, that, that's, alcohol consumption is, is part of the culture and stuff. So there's some real, real concerns here about harm, and they're, they're realistic concerns. In the hand, 
you know, how far is too far. Lisa, I'm curious. General, did General Conference address? Are you, you've been. What about food? About temperature food. Okay. Yeah, I don't. There are. It more likely if some of you can look up. Um, Lisa, there's the social principles, and then there's the resolutions. The book of resolutions is much broader, and this is where the church will, will uh, people who have issues like issue of food, they'll present it in general conference, will pass it, and you can read that. But I don't know anybody that reads that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Makes some people feel good. Yes, Garth. Doctors will recommend wine, okay, under certain conditions. I understand that studies show there may there is many people who become alcoholics from the use of beer that have distilled. Okay, so there might be some concern there. Sure. What was the question about food? Intemperate use of food. I I know I know our bishop and on some occasions several bishops have said during ordination of, of, of ministers when it talks about temperance. And he'll talk about this. This covers food, not just alcohol. I've been general con annual conferences where that was said. So it's a, it's there's an alert that there's also an issue. Not with a, the temperance issue is a broader issue than just the use of alcohol. And you better be believe the emails flew right after that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now sometimes you, pre yes. And I know, and no surprise to any of us, that particularly in this community, and particularly with adolescents, we've had some very, very serious issues. Okay. We have a few other things to get to. There was a one comment? Okay. Tobacco. Uh, probably no surprises here. Uh, we have formed our historic tradition of high standards, personal discipline, and social responsibility. In light of the overwhelming evidence, tobacco smoking, the use of smokeless tobacco, now, in the high school I went to, the drug of cho choice was the skull can, you know, in the, in the back. The, if you grew up in West Texas, that was your drug. Uh, we recommend total abstinence from the use of tobacco. We urge our educational communication resources be utilized to support and encourage such abstinence. Further, we recognize the harmful effects of passive smoke and support the restriction of smoking in public areas and workplaces. Of course, we know... Uh, Recently in Dallas, there's been some legislation in restaurants and stuff. Uh, What's the clergy on alcohol, tobacco? Is there 
No, there's not, there's not a statement on that that I've seen. Okay. Um, but again, there's a policy at Highland Park Methodist Church. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're a smoke-free facility. Did y'all know that? Uh, we're a smoke-free facility. So uh, we have employees, we have members that smoke. So what do they need to do? Step outside. So on the Hillcrest side, you can see our staff out there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. <laughs> uh, and that's just, you know, that, that's part of it. Now, uh, and it's interesting that there's not, there's not the power or the, 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 the emotional issue with smoking that there is with alcohol. Okay. Uh, let's do one here because we're running uh, this one. This one, you remember uh, last week on the issue of homosexuality, what was the proposal at General Conference that got voted down? Interesting, because we're going to see here in a few minutes that on, on one issue, we have actually come to, we agree to disagree, and it's actually stated in there, so there's a precedent. Gambling, a menace to society. No ifs, no ands, no buts. Yes, lotto is in there, okay? Deadly to the best interest of moral, social, economic, and spiritual life. Destructive of good government and good stewardship. Uh, a lot of states now, income. They see gambling as, as generating income. Uh, now, whether or not it goes to the reasons it was set up for is a different issue. As an act of faith and concern, Christians should abstain from gambling, should strive to minister to those victimized by the practice. Where gambling has become addictive, the church will encourage such individuals to receive therapeutic assistance so that the individual's energies may be redirected into positive and constructive ends. Um, now, go back here just a second. What church in the United States denomination has more Native American members than any other? By far, the United Methodist Church. By far. Next five groups do not total. Navajo Reservation on down. So, how have Native Americans discovered a way to get the white man's money. <laughs> and they go to the general conference as delegates. Don't you think it gets fun? The church acknowledges the dichotomy that can occur when opposing gambling while supporting American Indian tribal sovereignty and self-determination. Therefore, the church's role is to create sacred space to allow for a dialogue, we're back to that word again, dialogue, let's talk about this, and education, why? To promote a holistic understanding of the American Indian's historic quests for survival. We understand the driving principle. We understand the Native Americans' desire to be self-sustaining. And you know, some of the poorest areas of our country, it's a very, very critical issue. The church's prophetic call is to promote standards of justice and advocacy that would make it unnecessary and undesirable to resort to commercial gambling. So the issue is, although we, we, we understand the desire, we do not support the means. We would like to see a way that that would not be necessary to do, including public lotteries, casinos, raffles, internet gambling, gambling, with the emerging wireless technology and other games of chance. Now, have we ever had raffles at Highland Park Methodist Church? They are legion. One was two weeks ago, okay? Uh, and 
people sometimes staff obviously say we had no idea that's just kind of interesting you know we had a raffle among the young moms two weeks ago this interesting as a recreation as an escape or as a means of producing public revenue or funds for support of charities or government no matter what the issue is there's an opposition to it even if we understand the desire for revenue funding some things so thoughts <laughs> All right, now you've quit preaching and gone to meddling, okay? <laughs> what would you constitute what would you say about trading in stocks? Is that a gamble? <laughs> the last few years? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and how you define it, what are the boundaries and stuff like that, yeah. I don't think that that's included and what they're talking about, but there is a, you know, where does that line get drawn? You know, where, it, where does it cease to be gambling and it's just risk, you know? I can. Okay. I know in some situations the tribal elders control the funds for the tribe. Uh, the Navajo Reservation, last I heard, we used to go out there a lot, did not have gambling, did not allow it, but all land, for example, is owned by the tribe. There is no private land on the, you know, so if you have a house, you lease the land from the tribe who owns it. So, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of permutations there, yeah. Yes, Dana? Among other things that he spoke to do from the pulpit, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Some of y'all remember the great garage sale? What did we, what did we do? We raffled off cars. <laughs> Yeah, and again, they're non-binding. So, so I know that we have, we have had and have raffles at Highland Park United Methodist Church, and we've had from the pulpit it condemned. So this is one of those areas, you know. I know when we did the garage sale, people did not see that as gambling. They said, we're supporting youth missions, and we're just making a charitable contribution if somebody got the car, you know. We raffled off one year of the golf clubs of the guy that won the Byron Nelson that year, yeah. Uh, yes. Garth? If you win a sizable contribution in lottery. Is this the tithing argument? Yeah. The argument the Baptist Church friend of mine told me is okay, the real argument is 
Gross or net? They're not bound by the social principles. <laughs> All right. War and peace. Okay. This is the one that might set a precedent for the issue of homosexuality. Because this is the one where the general conference through the social principles says we agree to disagree. It's interesting. We believe war is incompatible with the teachings and example of Christ. Wham. Right out there. Okay. And therefore reject war as an instrument of national foreign policy. We oppose unilateral first or preemptive strike actions and strategies on the part of any government. Remember in the 50s and 60s and 70s we had first strike capacity. It was part of our national policy. As disciples of Christ, we are called to love our enemies, seek justice, and serve as reconcilers of conflict. We insist that the first moral duty of all nations is to work together to, res uh, to resolve by peaceful means every dispute that arises between or among them. We advocate the extension and strengthening of international treaties and institutions that provide a framework within the rule of law for responding to aggression terrorism, and genocide. We believe that human values must outweigh military claims as governments determine their priorities, that the militarization of society must be challenged and stopped. So, so far, pretty one-sided and pretty, pretty, pretty clear. It's going to get interesting in a moment. The manufacture, sale, and deployment armaments must be reduced and controlled. Production, possession, use of nuclear weapons be condemned. Do you remember the first national figure that flagged this and used the first language of the military-industrial complex? Dwight Eisenhower. And the, the after World War II flagged that that was a major threat to the United States. Consequently, we, enjoy, we endorse general and complete disarmament. That would surprise many people. Under strict and effective international control, we deplore war and urge the peaceful settlement of all disputes among nations from the beginning, the Christian conscience has struggled with the harsh realities of violence and war, for these evils clearly frustrate God's loving purposes to humankind. We yearn for the day when there will be no more war. The lion shall lie down with the lamb. And those uh, people will live together in peace and justice. Here it comes. Some of us. Not all of us. Some of us believe that war and other acts of violence are never acceptable to Christians. Period. And that's pretty much the language you've seen up to this point. Some of us, under any conceivable circumstances, we oppose war in principle. But we also acknowledge that many Christians believe that the when peaceful alternatives had failed, the force of arms may regretfully be preferable to unchecked aggression, t 
tyranny, and genocide. It's a big but. Okay. We understand that there's some Christians who in principle oppose war. Unilaterally, totally. We also understand that some people say that war may be preferable to the alternative. Think of Hitler, World War II. Think, you know, there, there are many examples out there where unless somebody was checked, they apparently wanted this to go as far as they could. We honor the witness of pacifists who will not allow us to become complacent about war and violence. The pacifist has a prophetic voice the church needs to hear. We also respect those who support the use of force. Interesting. But only in extreme situations. Only when it's clear, uh, when the need is clear beyond reasonable doubt. And through appropriate international organizations. Qualification, qualification, qualification. But, this, but that option is there. We urge the establishment of the rule of law and international affairs as a means of elimination of war, violence, and coercion in these, these affairs. We reject national policies of enforced military service, which would be? We oppose the draft. Why would we do that? This would force people to do what? They, you know, they would no longer be able to volunteer. It'd be they would be forced to serve where their conscience may not say that is uh, appropriate for them. That, we believe the draft is incompatible with the gospel. We acknowledge the agonizing decision or attention created by the demand for military service by natural governments. We urge all young adults to seek the counsel of the church as they reach a conscientious decision concerning the nature of their responsibility as citizens. Pastors are called upon to be available for counseling for all young adults who face conscription who may be considering voluntary enlistment in the armed forces. Of course, at the moment, we have no conscri conscription. We've not had for a long time. But some of us here remember the late 1960s. And the early, what was it, 69, 70, when the draft was in? I remember we all watched the lotto. They would do the 1973. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was uh, interesting times to live through including those who consciously refuse to cooperate with the system of conscription. You remember all the negative rhetoric about the draft dodgers of that era? Okay, the Methodist Church says we support them. If, that, if, if their conscience says that, we support them. Conscientious objection. We support and extend the ministry of the church to those persons who consciously oppose all war or any particular war. There was a point where I think policy in the United States government was that you had to oppose all. Still is? That's the policy of the government. You have to be against war categorically. You can't select and choose. Social principles say you can select and choose. Okay, we support that. And who therefore refuse to serve in the armed forces or to cooperate with systems of military conscription. Now, what about the other hand? Interesting. We also support and extend the church's ministry to those persons who conscientiously choose to serve in the armed forces or to accept alternative service. We have some who are by conscience against it. We have some who in conscience will serve. We support both. As Christians, we are aware that neither 
the way of military action nor the way of inaction is always righteous before God. That's an interesting statement. Simply is not that simple. And a very complex issue. Uh, now, there ought to be some thoughts on this one. <laughs> Garth? Well, and it's interesting, for those of us who, uh, like myself, are above 60, have a few decades there, uh, there was a, in the 20s and 30s, very strong anti-war view leading up to World War II. Uh, coming out of World War II, that shifted. Vietnam War, it shifted. Uh, some of us remember American soldiers being spit on, cursed, simply because they had served. That is like 180 degrees the other direction now. It, there, there is a social component to this. Uh, culturally, we, uh, you know, depending on what's going on in the culture as, as to how we react to that. But it's a tough, tough issues. This last slide is the one I think is just particularly well worded. Uh, the ambiguity there, yes. Another can of worms. <laughs> All right. Yes. Maybe a quarter. Maybe a quarter million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, but I yeah. I guess my point is, is, is there something that happens when you have a statement of the church that says we always think these religions really aren't compatible with God, and we just don't see it? I, I, there's there's got to be something that happens inside you when there's something like that. You just simply. 
And then the, one of the other issues is there are principles. We live east of Eden. There, there are things that we believe, but then in the real politic that we live in, That that statement would not stand if you actually took it to a vote. I don't think that's what my question is. Okay. I think that's okay. the right. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, there's a lot of evidence for that, too. Yeah. I, I feel that Christianity is going to have a long and storied history with the Catholic theology involved. Do you think that the, the limitations that are put in in the language is kind of a way to correct that? And I know that the, the just war theory is part of the Catholic Church. We don't actually have that within the Methodist Church, but there, there, there's a sense that when you're dealing with war, you're dealing with the, the global idea of justice and under what conditions can you justify something. Yeah. How many wars have been fought in the name of Christianity? Oh, over the last 2,000 years? Yeah. <laughs> Two more comments and we've got to close. Yeah. We're going to have to move on. Believe it or not, it's 12 noon. Next week, we're going to deal with issues surrounding the taking of human life, uh, which would include capital punishment and some things like that. And with that, our series will draw to a close. Uh, but then we have Mr. Ted Campbell coming for a few weeks to talk about Methodism and the sacraments. We're going to have uh, the dean of Perkins who will be with us and the conversation will